It is in the concert room, rather than in the opera house, declared T.S. Eliot as he was writing Little Gidding, the last of his quartets, that the germ of a poem may be quickened. The context is that of his suggestion that a poet may gain much from the study of music. And he draws attention in particular to the sense of rhythm and the sense of structure. And then he goes on, there are possibilities for verse which bear some analogy to the development of a theme by different groups of instruments. There are possibilities of transitions in a poem comparable to the different movements of a symphony or a quartet. There are possibilities of contrapuntal arrangement of subject matter. However, Eliot also disarmingly remarks that how much technical knowledge of musical form is desirable, I do not know, for I have not that technical knowledge myself. And he warns, I think plausibly, against the poet working too closely to musical analogies. The result might be an effect of artificiality. Now, by entitling his final sequence of major poems, Quartets, he invites attention to the musical analogy. But we should do well, I think, to heed his warning and not seek to press the implied model further than the verse warrants. In her influential discussion of the music of four quartets, Dame Helen Gardner focuses on some of those technicalities, such as the way that the first movement, as she puts it, of each poem contains, and I quote, two contrasted but related themes, like the first and second subjects of a movement in strict sonata form. Though she does not mention it, we are presumably supposed to remember that the first movement of a classical string quartet is normally in sonata form though she immediately warns that the sonata analogy must not be taken too literally. She identifies quasi-Beethovian bridge passages and points to an analogue of counterpoint in the final quartet. But what is striking is that she nowhere takes account of the most obvious manifestation of the figure of four, to which the term quartet points us. That, as A.D. Moody puts it, a quartet is a consort of four instruments or voices, and it's on this feature that I wish to focus. Now, Goethe, will remember, proffered the suggestion that the string quartet is the most comprehensible genre of mu instrumental music. One hears four intelligent people conversing with one another, believes one might learn something from their discourse, and recognise the special character of the instruments. Well, whether the conversational analogy applies with equal success to all types of string quartet, one may perhaps doubt, and even with respect to the classical canon, as an ideal it may well be too narrow. But the model does strike me as a creative one in the case of Eliot's sequence of poems, which brings me to my subtitle, Four Voices in the Conversation of Mankind. Now, philosophers here will recognise an allusion to Michael Oakeshott's suggestive essay, The Voice of Poetry in the Conversation of Mankind, in which he proposes that the appropriate model of conversation involves a diversity of voices such that different universes of discourse meet, acknowledge each other, and enjoy an oblique relationship which neither requires nor forecasts 
they are being assimilated to one another. Now, while I find Oakeshott's development of this model seriously flawed, this initial outline strikes me as both interestingly defensible, though I'm not convinced the word relationship should be in the singular, and one that fits the quartets rather well. The model will only work if the voices are significantly diverse. One notes that normally, in a string quartet, three of the instruments are different, and in a piano quartet, all four. This relates to one of two difficulties I have with Moody's proposal, that in Eliot's sequence, the four voices may be identified as those of natural experience, of thought which moves into meditation, of meditation which moves into prayer, and of prayer which would culminate in vision. One may, I think, perhaps legitimately doubt whether the latter three adequately reflect the diversity provided by differentiation of musical instruments. My second problem is arguably more fundamental. In a set of musical quartets, each of the four instruments has a distinct and significantly weighty role in each quartet. But while an Eliot sequence taken as a whole, one might reasonably represent each of Moody's supposed voices as having a role of comparable weight and significance. This is not the case in each poem taken separately. The latter two voices, uh, the latter two supposed voices, for example, fit at best awkwardly into any plausible schematic representation of Burnt Norton, which opens the sequence. And this is crucial, because it was apparently only in working on the second poem, East Coca, as a sequel to Burnt Norton, that the idea came to Eliot that they could be seen as a set of three quartets. By the time he completed East Coker, this had turned into four. So the plausibility of reading Burnt Norton as distributed between four voices must have been, or at least have become, apparent to him as he sought to construct a sequel. If one takes Burnt Norton as the template, as Eliot did, then a rather different pattern might be thought to emerge. And on my reading, the four voices, playing approximately equal, uh, equally weighty roles, are those of relatively untheorized experience, of self-conscious poetry, of philosophy, and of religion. In the first of the five sections, or movements, for Bernd Norton, uh, Helen Gardner identifies her first and second subjects as abstract speculation and an experience in the garden, which she glosses as a meditation on consciousness and a presentation of consciousness. The meditation on consciousness, opening with time present and time past, are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past is a reworking of St. Augustine's exploration of the nature of time and its relation to eternity, an abstract speculation expressed through the modality of prayer, thereby incorporating the voices at once of philosophy and of religion, the two violins, perhaps. With the words, what might have been and what has been, point to one end which is always present, echoing in our minds, we are brought through a bridge passage, Footfalls echo in the memory, down the passage which we did not take, towards the door we never opened, into the rose garden, where, 
we are presented with moments of concrete immediacy, evoked as at once imagination and memory, both deception and reality, disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves. One remembers Eliot's visit a few months before to Bert Norton's rose garden with Emily Hale, to whom he had sent roses long before. The verse tells of what had been in the context of what might have been. At the heart of the garden, the pool was filled with water out of sunlight, and the lotus rose quietly, quietly. The surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. At one level, we are presented with an experience in a garden. Echoed ecstasy, as East Coker puts it, and the evocation of our capacity to apprehend or imagine a reality that transcends the merely mundane powers the whole sequence of poems. And from this point of view, the moment in the Rose Garden is, as Bert Norton insists, one with the moment in the arbour where the rain beat, the moment in the drafted church at Smokefall. It's with East Coker's intense moment, isolated with no before and after. One of Little Gidding's patterns of timeless moments. Bert Norton's moment of ecstasy is balanced in its fourth lyric section with chill, fingers of you curled down on us, when the black cloud carries the sun away. And Little Gidding seeks to help us see that the moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. But it is not only an ecstatic moment, but also poetry that is echoed here. For Bert Norton's experience in the Rose Garden parallels the flawed yet transcendent passion of the first section of the Wasteland. When we came back late from the Hyacinth Garden, your arms full and your hair wet, I could not speak and my eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead, and I knew nothing, looking into the heart of light, the silence. Odin Lear das The concluding quotation from Tristan und Isolde, of course, resolves joy into torment. The garden of love is laid waste. It is part of the business of Bert, first of Bert Norton and then of the whole sequence of quartets to re-engage with the problematics of the wasteland in exploring how far such aspirations to transcendence, here imaged as quasi-erotic heart-of-light experiences, must always be frustrated, whether they can lead to anything more than the wasteland's fragments shored against my ruins. In this respect, it appears that Burnt Norton can of itself offer little comfort. <coughs> Its interrogation of experience is more controlled than that of the wasteland, which it, in a sense, answers. And in its conclusion, evokes those timeless moments, quick now, here now, always, echoing our entrance into Bird Norton's rose garden. Quick, said the bird, find them, find them. But the response of the final lines enacts the tidal pull of the wasteland sensibility. Ridiculous, the waste sad time stretching before and after. We are reminded that the bird's invitation has already been described as the deception of the thrush. 
Nevertheless, Burnt Norton is not the last word, and the remaining three quartets seek so to transform that sensibility as to make imaginatively and emotionally credible little videos. Quick now, here now, always. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. Seen this way, the second subject of Bert Norton's first movement is not simply concerned with Helen Gardner's experience in a garden, but with reworking an already achieved poetic vision, the voice of self-conscious poetry as well as of experience, as the first subject incorporates the voices both of philosophy and of religion. And thereafter, the voices begin to partially separate out. To give some sense of how the development takes place, it may help to say a little about the common structure underlying each poem in the sequence. And to grasp what underlies this, we need to return once more to The Wasteland. In its published form, The Wasteland falls into five sections, all save the fourth of significant length with subsections, whilst the fourth is a ten-line book. This received text <coughs> is significantly different from that originally intended, having been heavily edited by Ezra Pound in discussion with Elliot. Most spectacularly, the fourth section originally ran to nearly 100 lines, of which all save the final ten were cut. Nevertheless, it is the text as edited by Pound which Elliot uses as his template in preparing Bert Norton which at the time he expected to be his final work of pure as distinct from dramatic poetry. While the remaining quartets used Bert Norton as their basic model, though with carefully controlled variations. Thus, Bert Norton too falls into five sections, all save the fourth of significant length with subsections, while the fourth is a ten-line lyric. Further, the first subsection of the second movement of the Wasteland is a quasi-parodic imitation of Shakespeare. Eliot's, the chair she sat in like a burnished throne, glowed on the marble, evoking Enobarbus on Cleopatra. The barge she sat in like a burnished throne, burned on the water. In the same place in Burnt Norton, we have an original imitation of a symbolist lyric. Eliot's garlic and sapphires in the mud, being inspired by Malamé's Tonne Egubi Omea and Bavambu Egubi. This subtle modification of the original pattern provides a clue to the sophisticated reshaping that is going on in Burnt Norton, transmuting what was essentially a haphazard structure into a carefully controlled, even organic one. With the imitation transformed into a lyric, a balance is provided to the later lyric which constitutes section four. Were we to treat this opening lyric as if it were an independent section like the answering one, we would then have six sections, each set of three having a lyric at the center, with the three later sections mapping in transformed fashion onto the former. The effect of not giving the first lyric its own section is to throw the weight forward onto the later movements, and in particular onto the second lyric. The earlier lyric invites us to ascend to summer in the tree, and its flanking commentary, the latter part of the second section, characterizes the aspiration to timeless moments as being to 
affable elevation without motion. The following section leads us into the later lyric with the injunction, descend lower. And as we've seen in the lyric itself, chill fingers of you are curled down on us. This throws light on the second of the two epigraphs from Heraclitus that prefaced the poem. The way up and the way down are one and the same. Moody's suggestion is apposite. Bert Norton's two movements work out the way up is the way down, while the remaining three work out the way down is the way up. An analogous formulation frames East Coca, <clears throat> which moves from in my beginning is my end to in my end is my beginning. And the two motifs are united in the following quartet, the dry salvages, with the way up is the way down, the way forward is the way back. Just that way it is. One notes that the epigraphs, though originally prefaced just to Bert Norton, were later associated with the whole sequence. The subtlety is arguably more complex than this, since each of the non-lyrical sections divides into two main subsections, so that each half is made up of five units, of which its lyric is the third. And Moody has argued that the five main sections of the second half correspond in reversed or mirrored order to those of the first half, so that the tenth matches the first, the ninth, the second, and so on. And so, for example, the heart of light in the garden is matched by the word in the desert. Moody remarks on the likeness of this structure to that of Bartok's fourth string quartet, which is sometimes referred to as a Greek apsilon, or else an AA quartet form. And Moody wonders whether it might have been in the hearing of this work that the germ of Bert Norton was, to use Eliot's striking metaphor, quickened. <coughs> this, of course, is speculative. What is less speculative is that each of the four voices I have identified is itself variable. <clears throat> that of self-conscious poetry may sometimes be exemplified by obituary imitation, whether of Malame with Bert Norton's Garlic and Sapphires in the Mud, of War Whitman with the Rank Parenthus of the April Dooryard in the Dry Salvages, or of Dante, with the sustained imitation of a canto, part inferno, part purgatorio, in the second section of Little Gideon. But it may also emerge as commentary. As with the passage following <coughs> the lyric on the decay of nature, that in East Coca is placed where we find the simplest lyric in the first quartet. That was a way of putting it, not very satisfactory, a periphrastic study in a worn-out poetical fashion. Further, this modulation of the voice self-consciously engaged with poetry is itself, as it were, placed as one with that of the eminent men of letters, who, with the generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, are all destined to go into the dark. Commentary, as one might say, on the commentary. Perhaps equally important, the imitative modulation of the voice itself undergoes reversals. <clears throat> Mahomet and Symbolist sensibility more generally, which had at crucial stages enabled Eliot as a poet, dominate the opening lyric of Bert Norton, providing the context in which we receive the Dantean echo of a vision from the stars of this little threshing floor of earth. But 
By the time we reach Little Giddy, Dante dominates the original imitation, and the echo of Mallarmé, since our concern was speech, and speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe, that is itself subject to the refining fires of the purgatorio. From wrong to wrong the exasperated spirit proceeds, unless restored by that refining fire, where you must move in measure like a dancer. And there seems little doubt that this reversal is presented as enacting a deepening of insight. <coughs> the other voices <coughs> are also variegated. That of experience encompasses not only the sudden illumination, but also the moments of agony, and those of deep puzzlement and anxiety in a dark wood. Religion is dominated in Burnt Norton by St. Augustine, the word of the fourth evangelist, and the ten stairs of that master of the negative way, St. John of the Cross. But by the middle of little giving, the weight falls on the positive way of the Lady Julian's All Shall Be Well, the way up as well as the way down. And the transition to this transformation has crucially involved a descant of the equal mind, the yoga, of the Bhagavad Gita. The whole earth is our hospital, claims the second lyric of East Coca. Eastern as well as Western religions preparing to furnish its healers. And as for philosophy, Heraclitus stands at the door with his epigraphs, <coughs> the first of which may be translated as Although the Logos is common to all, the many live as though their understanding were a private possession. So far as the poetry proper is concerned, Bernd Norton's starting point is the phenomenology of time, experience as Augustine's distentio, at once extension and distraction, both the waste-sad time, the Bergsonian enchainment of past and future, and as pointing to eternity conceived as one end which is always present. <clears throat> However, the associated Augustinian metaphysics is at best marginal, and other philosophical authorities soon chime in. Behind Augustine lie Plotinus and so Plato, but behind St. John of the Cross lie St. Thomas Aquinas and so Aristotle. And sure enough, we have echoes of both. Aristotle's first mover, the cause and end of movement, as well as Plato's between unbeing and being, we find brought together at the climax of the final section. That these specific authorities are invoked should give us pause. For the metaphysics of Heraclitus, Plato and Aristotle are not identical or even compatible. This suggests that the poem is not concerned to endorse any particular metaphysic without qualification, but rather to evoke forms of experience, for the understanding of which philosophers provide rival forms of intellectual framework. To the extent that these diverse forms of our intellectual inheritance all variously point to a transcendent logos, are in various non-pejorative ways logocentric, the echabon of the poem is confirmed in its aspiration to a universal significance. But, reciprocally, we are invited to interpret and place the rival metaphysics in the light of what the poem shows us through its own quasi-musical searching of experience, what one might call its poetic phenomenology. <clears throat> and this brings us to the heart of the project 
of the quartets, the notion of a logos common to all, the first epigraph. To Eliot's lifelong engagement with the possibility of the transcendence of subjective experience. And this, once again, may be focused by return to the wasteland. A negative, even solipsistic assessment of the aspiration of the transcendence of subjective experience is at first glance embodied in a quotation from F. H. Bradley, whose work had been the subject of Eliot's doctoral dissertation, in a note to the final section of the Wasteland. I quote this quotation from Bradley, quoted by Eliot. My external sensations are no less private to myself than are my thoughts or my feelings. In either case, my experience falls within my own circle, a circle closed on the outside, and with all its elements alike, every sphere is opaque to the others which surround it. In brief, regarded as an existence which appears in a soul, the whole world for each is peculiar and private to that soul. And this note is juxtaposed with a terrifying evocation of being permanently immured within a perimeter, closed on the outside from Dante's Inferno thus inviting a negative reading of Bradley's claim. But closer attention reveals greater complexity. The note is to the penultimate command from the Upanishads. Da, diapha, I have heard the key turn in the door once and turn once only. We think of the key, each in his prison thinking of the key, each confirms a prison only at nightfall. Ethereal rumours revive for a moment a broken Coriolanus. The turning key is Eliot's rather than Dante's, and the doom-laden night vision of the latter's broken Ogolino contrasts sufficiently with Eliot's ethereal rumours to put us on our guard. Again, the note is to the poem's penultimate command from the Upanishads, Diaphan which is glossed as sympathise, and da, one notes, is not only Sanskrit, but also the Russian affirmative. Further, the passage quoted forms part of Bradley's attempt to correct the natural mistake that the outer world of experience is common to all, quote, unlike our inner worlds, thereby making communication possible. If the world is regarded as an existence which appears in a soul, then the outer one is as private as the inner. The underlying error is to regard the world in this way. We can indeed communicate because, while people's experiences are all separate from each other, the contents of these experiences may be identical. Indeed, says Bradley, to be possessed directly of what is personal to the mind of another would in the end be unmeaning. For Bradley, solipsism is the apotheosis of an abstraction, that of my private self set up as a substantive, which is real, independent of the whole. However, though false, it points to an important truth, I quote again, my way of contact with reality is through a limited aperture, for I cannot get at it directly except through the felt of this. Everything beyond, though not less real, is an expansion of the common essence which we feel burningly in this one focus. End quotation from Bradley. Given this context, the questions Eliot's note press upon us are whether the essence we feel burningly 
can indeed be common if it is unintelligible to be possessed directly of what is personal to the mind of another. And hence, whether we can indeed sympathize, feel with others, as the Upanishad demands, since our experiences are all separate from each other. The fear that subjective experience cannot thus be transcended is expressed in the images of key and prison. Bradley's assurance that the picture which gives rise to the fear merely embodies a natural mistake may perhaps be included among the ethereal rumours which revive Coriolanus, but only for a moment. So far as the wasteland goes, it is no more than a rumour, not finally vivified, for assurances about identity of content in experience do not touch the natural horror at the thought that its quality is forever private, that full feeling with is unmeaning. Yet, paradoxically, the poem itself evokes the sense of that sympathy, delicately conveying the quality of the despair that we are each in his prison. The poem itself challenges Bradley by making so vivid the experience resulting from what to him was but a natural mistake that the credibility of his proposed resolution is put in doubt, while by its very poetic power showing the transcendence of subjective experience is indeed possible. In the third of the quartets, we once again encounter such ethereal rumours. At nightfall, in the rigging and the aerial, is a voice discanting. This voice is indeed credited, but it goes beyond Bradley. In a philosophical article, written as he prepared his dissertation, Eliot had made clear his conviction of the need to go beyond Bradley. I quote from Eliot. Bradley's absolute responds only to an imaginary demand of thought and satisfies only an imaginary demand of feeling. Pretending to be something which makes finite centres cohere, it turns out to be merely the assertion that they do. And this assertion is only true so far as we hear and now find it to be so. As Moody aptly puts it, Eliot gave up <coughs> philosophy in 1916 because you cannot attain the absolute simply by taking thought. For Eliot, the way forward lay through poetry's capacity to capture and enforce the immediacy and actuality of experience, exploring the possibilities of its authentic unification through testing any proposed patterning of experience against the lived reality. And for a moment, the road seemed blocked. The wasteland displays the result. On Margate Sands, I can connect nothing with nothing. All the poem has is fragments shored against my ruins. The way was reopened by his engagement with the symbolist poet Valeri, in whom Eliot found a kindred spirit and a model for philosophical poetry. Of La Cimetière Marat, Eliot declared, I quote, it has what I call the philosophic structure, an organization not merely of successive responses to the situation, but of further responses to his own responses. And of Valeri's poetry more generally, the approximation between the two modes, the conceptual and the poetic, comes closer than in the work of any other poet. And this offered the possibility of a contemporary form of unification of thought and feeling through a poetry with a philosophic structure which allows reflective and comprehensive organising of both the content and the quality of significant experiences or responses that might otherwise 
be fragmentary and incommunicable. By actualizing the meaning perceived and experienced as itself an immediate experience. In the words of the dry salvages, we had the experience but missed the meaning. And approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form. By the time of four quartets, Bradley had fallen into the background. We find prefixed to them Heraclitus' claim that it's not Bradley's outer world of experience, but the logos that is common to all. The poems themselves seek to show that without this recognition, in which the logos of Heraclitus is united with that of the fourth evangelist, each is indeed in his prison, and that what counts as understanding is to continue the epigraph, merely a private possession. The quartets aim to achieve this recognition, to make it experientially present, and at least in the later poems of the sequence, to do so through actualizing the meaning found in experience in such a way that it indeed becomes more than the experience of one life only, to quote from Trisalvation. So let's see how it works. The founding experience of the poetic sequence evokes the erotic heart of light immediacy of the wasteland. Their joy turned to torment, the citation of Tristan and Isolde associating the poem's deepest moment of mutuality with the artifice of a love potion. In the opening movement of Bird Norton, the experience in the Rose Garden again leads to loss, but now it's unclear whether the experience is simply chimerical or points to an elusive reality. It is the work of the poetic sequence from East Coker to Little Giddy to render imaginatively compelling the possibility of moving from the disappointment of the waste-sad time stretching before and after, that concludes Bert Norton, to the positive final movement of Little Giddy, and opening that final coda with its condition of complete simplicity, we have a haunting invocation from the cloud of unknowing in which a soul is one with God, with the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling. Through responding to the calling of the divine love, the sensuous rose of Bert Norton is united with Dante's spiritual rose at the conclusion where the rose and the fire are one. The imaginative quest for the possibility of authentic concern for each other's inwardness ultimately pushes the poet back to a version of the Heraclitean logos, common to all but transcending each, envisaged in Johannine terms as calling each one of us to be united to it in love. The series of conversations that constitute the quartets that is, has at once a programme and a trajectory. But in neither respect are any of the voices of experience, poetry, philosophy, religion marginalised. The sequence remains throughout a site where Oakshot's different universes of discourse meet and relate to each other without any question of mutual assimilation. But this is not to say that they remain unaffected by each other, and nor should they. Let us return to that philosophical poetic structure Eliot learnt from Verlaine. An organisation, not merely of successive responses to the situation, but of further responses to his own responses. In Bertlaw, the evocation of the moment in the garden is closed by three lines which take us back to the opening philosophico-religious meditation. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end which is always present. This response to the poetic response to an experience in a garden, itself a response to the wasteland's heart of light experience, 
is responded to poetically by the Symbolese lyric, which engages with what this one end might be, with even the deadly pattern of the boar hound and the boar reconciled beyond the stars. Eliot had learned from the Symbolists techniques of indirection, patterning and accumulation, the point of the mind beyond often incompatible images, and allow words to have their senses modified by their relationships with those who surround them, so that the poetry can, as Eliot put it, mean more, not less, than ordinary speech can communicate. Malamé had used the analogy with music, and Eliot points out that the Symbolists understood music as aiming, again I quote from Eliot, for an unattainable timelessness, a yearning for the stillness of a painting or sculpture beyond contingency. And this aspiration is articulated in the fifth section. Only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness, as a Chinese jar still moves perpetually in its stillness. But at once we're faced with its precariousness. Words strain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden. And earlier, the reading of the one end in terms of assent by symbolist sensibility was found wanting when the voices of experience, philosophy, and religion appear to combine with only through time. Time is conquered. We move immediately to a very different experience. Here is a place of disaffection. We are reminded of the wasteland's unreal city and to encourage to plumb its depths, to descend lower, until death itself is envisaged in the lyric of section four with its chill fingers of you, counted at once with the remembrance of a moment of ecstasy when the kingfisher's wing has answered light to light, as in the final section, the breaking of our words is counted by the word in the desert. This is not the place, and I certainly don't have the time, to offer a detailed analysis. But in general terms, Bert Norton presents us poetically with aspirations and experiences which point beyond human resources, for that which is only living can only die. But does so in such a manner that it is possible to see the logos, the word, if real, as providing for human experience the completion of its partial ecstasy, the resolution of its partial horror. In logical terms, it offers an abduction. And the logocentric philosophical and religious voices point to ways such a resolution might be understood and lived. But, as we have seen, the enacted sensibility finds itself ultimately unable to live it. Ridiculous, the wastes have time, stretching before and after. Subsequent poems respond to this response to the founding heart of life situation in terms of all four voices. Poetically, Malaymé becomes just one of many voices. And the modulation into literary commentary of thought and theory is similarly subsumed into a wider vision. These things have served their purpose, let them be. Religiously, as we've seen, St. John of the Cross is balanced by the Lady Julian and others, while the philosophico-religious voice of St. Augustine is met by that of the Bhagavad Gita. Further, by implication, we go behind Plato and Aristotle to Heraclitus' vision of fire as the ultimate creative element which dominates the final quartet. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. But this is my last point. At least as significant as these is the transformation of the voice of experience. A transformation essential to the heart of the project of the quartets as I have identified it. 
From the individualism of Burt Norton, where the we of the Rose Garden experience is never realised, Emily Hale is, as it were, a lay figure, and we are encouraged to descend only into the world of perpetual solitude. Two, a striving for a sense of the communality of experience, sometimes forced, but ultimately genuine drawing on Eliot's experience far-watching in the blitz, enabling us to credit the we that opens the final coda, offering a final response to the succession of responses to those equivocal heart-of-light experiences that have haunted Eliot's poetry since the wasteland, and which have been given quasi-musical shape through the four dominant voices of the quartets. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Thank you. Thank you.